0: We live at a curious moment when data and information from a variety of sources overwhelm our senses and when there are people who are working to manipulate some of that data, spreading disinformation and discord. This has led to a skepticism and distrust of data that can make it difficult to find common ground and which, when it comes to public health, may make us all unsafe. Overcoming that distrust and helping people see how the world adds up is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories coming to you from the annual meeting of the Royal Statistical Society. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me as panelists today are John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Brian Tarran, Editor of Significance Magazine. Our guest today is Tim Harford. Tim is the author of the books Messy and the best-selling The Undercover Economist. He's also a senior columnist at the Financial Times and the presenter of Radio 4's More or Less, the series 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, And the new podcast, Cautionary Tales, he's an associate member of Newfield College, Oxford, and an honorary fellow of the Royal Statistical Society. Tim was made an OBE for Services Toward Improving Economic Understanding in the New Year Honors of 2019. He has a new book coming out called How to Make the World Add Up, 10 Rules for Thinking Differently About Numbers, designed to, quote, convince you that statistics can be used to illuminate reality with clarity and honesty, end quote. Tim, thank you so much
1: for being here. Well thank you Rosemary.
0: I guess just to start our conversation, why did you feel compelled to write this particular book?
1: Well I've been presenting more or less on the BBC for 13 years now and that is a program a little bit like Stats and Stories. It's a a program uh, about trying to make sense of the world through numbers and so it seemed natural to, to write a book about how to use statistics to make sense of the world. But for a long time I just just couldn't quite face writing that book. Uh, I didn't think I had anything new to say. There are so many good books out there already about explaining how statistics work and how to understand them. And um, it it was really the experience of uh, covering uh, recent uh, political elections in the US and in the UK, a very contentious Brexit referendum in the UK, that made me start to question what we were doing and and how we were doing it and then maybe it wasn't enough to simply um, shoot down falsehoods to just be doing fact checking which which was never the only thing that more or less did but that sometimes you could explain what the data showed and people just didn't have any interest whatsoever in listening and that that's really what started the ball rolling the process of of working on on this book how to make the world add up uh, trying to help people think about uh the, the filters and the biases and the the wishful thinking and the political ideology and all of the ways in which we uh, we perceive the world around us that will affect our ability to use statistics to perceive reality clearly so it's it's part a book about statistics but it's it's partly a book trying to help people be wiser about themselves
2: I I love that you started with this comparison of 1954 stories, you know, the, the Huff book about how to lie with statistics running counter to the Richard Dahl and Austin Bradford Hill smoking and lung cancer piece. When, when did you hook on to that as, as kind of this, this parallel story to be told about the, the value of, of evidence?
1: Well, I, I was struck by an article published in Significance Magazine a few years ago, um, just pointing out that uh, Darrell Huff, the author of this great book, it's a wonderful book, How to Lie with Statistics, had actually ended up shilling for Big Tobacco. Uh, and that, that was a, struck me as a sad footnote to somebody who loved that book. Um, but the more I looked into it, the more I realized that there's really a, a, a very important and complex story going on here. On the one hand, you have Huff. And I know many people uh, listening to this podcast, many people watching this conference session will, will know about Daryl Huff's book how to lie with statistics and, it, and what a great little book it is it's funny and it's insightful they'll know about that um they won't know necessarily huff's uh, role in the in the tobacco industry the fact that he showed up at a, a senate hearing and with a little story plucked out of his book about how there's a really solid correlation between stalks and babies and mm. and tried to yeah. suggest that the, you know the same thing is true of cigarettes and, and cancer um what really struck me though is is at the same time as you got Huff with the, I think really what the traditional approach to popular statistics is what Huff did, which is Mm -hmm. to come up with lots of examples of the media getting statistics wrong, politicians lying with statistics, advertisers lying with statistics, and to shoot them all down. Mm -hmm. Uh, That vision of statistics contrasted with what Austin Bradford Hill and Richard Doll were doing in the same year, which was to use statistics to produce one of, not the only, but one of the first compelling pieces of evidence that smoking cigarettes is uh, dram- dramatically increases your risk of lung cancer. And it's just the, the contrast between those two ideas, like statistics are a trick and I'll show you how to see the trick, versus mm-hmm. statistics are a tool that show you very important things about the world that we couldn't perceive in any other way, and maybe we should be thinking about how to use the tool rather than just how to spot the trick
3: the book tim i was very uh, lucky to be sent a uh, early version of it it's a fantastic read and uh what struck me actually was the the fact that the, the book almost i mean we start with the story of daryl huff um, but then it, you go on to look at your 10 rules about statistics I, and you don't start by saying you know rule number one is not whether this statistic makes sense or not or whether what does it actually mean it's how does, how does this statistic make you feel? It's, you know, search your feelings. Why is that so important, do you think?
1: Well, it was just the, the, the experience of all of the fact-checking during all of these political campaigns made me realise that th- the leading uh, predictor of what somebody is going to think about anything is what is their emotional reaction. Whether you're you know pro-Trump, anti-Trump, pro-Brexit, anti-Brexit, uh, pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine, these debates aren't about facts, fundamentally. First and foremost, they're about emotions, about political tribal identity, about quite deep primal feelings about the world. And so what is the point of writing a book that tells people how to use statistics to understand the world unless we first face that head on? And, and t- so that's why the first piece of advice is to recognise your own emotions. And I, I tell a story about absolutely astonishing art forgery that was not a very good forgery that fooled one of the greatest art critics in the world because he got emotionally carried away. So the technical expertise is not going to save you if you let your emotions get away with you. So that's why I emphasise that. Of course, we can't um, and, and probably shouldn't want to ignore our emotions, ignore our uh, political beliefs and preconceptions, uh, our our, our cultural identity. I mean, these are all part of who we are and how we think. We can't get away from that. But we should at least notice it. And I found it personally really helpful when I'm on Twitter. I will no longer just, as I used to five, six years ago, just retweet a graph or a claim that feels right to me and that makes a point that I approve of and I would like to be more broadly appreciated. That I, I, I notice, oh, hang on, I'm having an emotional reaction to this claim. This claim is making me feel vindicated. Or in contrast, this claim is making me feel defensive. I can't believe it's true. And simply to notice that before I do anything else, I think it takes some of the sting, the power of the emotions out of it. And then once you've done that, then you can start doing the really interesting stuff, which is to think about what the claim means and whether it's true or not. So, so you're advocating
2: thoughtful use of social media, Tim? <laughs> uh, no, <I'm> just... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, you could give it this, a go. This is horrifying. You might destroy this whole, whole industry.
1: <laughs> yeah, social media doesn't always help. But, uh, I mean, of course, there are two sides to, to, to all of this. If people complain about social media. Yeah, people yeah, complain about our blogging and all of this stuff and all the disinformation that's out there. But one of the points I make later in the book is if you are curious and you want to know the truth... Once you've got past that emotional reaction, it's never been easier to find you know really thoughtful, informed commentary from genuine experts with sources just a click away. You just don't need to have the motivation, the curiosity to want to go that extra click, and it's it's all out there for anybody. It's a, I mean, it's a wonderful time to be curious about the world, really.
3: But then uh, I think another important argument you make in in your book is there's almost like a lack of curiosity. or or, you know in the world today and that we're not people aren't quite in that sweet spot do you want to talk a little bit about that and what what you see as the problem there
1: so some people are curious and some people aren't and of course some people are curious about some things and not curious about other things so I don't want to make some sweeping generalization that we're less curious than we used to be I don't know if that's true but I I have been um, really struck by two things One is the research of a group at uh, Yale University uh, led by Professor Dan Kahan, who studies uh, political cognition, the way we think about political identity and cultural identity. And one of the things he's found is that there's almost no antidote to political tribalism except uh, curiosity. You can measure curiosity. He particularly focuses in on scientific curiosity, curiosity about the scientific world, which is different to scientific education or scientific literacy. And he finds that people who are curious about science tend to be less politically polarized. They're not as defined by their their political identities as, say, a Republican or a Democrat as everybody else is. And that seems to be partly because um, if you see a surprising claim that threatens your political identity, most people view that as, as threatening. I, I don't want to see this claim, I don't want to hear any more of it because it's threatening my sense of who I am and that my sense that I'm on the right side of things. But if you're a scientifically curious person, you see a surprising claim. You go, oh, that's interesting, I didn't expect that. I want to know more, show me more. So that was a very striking thing. But the other thing was simply to reflect about what, from the point of view of personal experience, really great communication about technical subjects looks like, whether we're talking about um, the natural world, whether we're talking about astrophysics, whether we're talking about economics, my own field, or statistics, or whatever it is, we tend to think, as, as geeks, i proudly a geek, uh, we tend to think that if you if you just explain things really clearly, slowly and clearly, that's the key to good communication. But then when you think about the great Uh, communicators about science, I think back to Carl Sagan for example, Um, it's not about clear communication, it's about really inspiring that sense of curiosity and really driving people to want to find out more about the world. So I've been telling my fellow economists we need to be more like someone like David Attenborough or Carl Sagan in the way we communicate. It's not just about clarity.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, recording at the annual meeting of the Royal Statistical Society. Our guest is Tim Harford, whose latest book, How to Make the World Add Up, is meant to help us all better understand the importance of good statistical data in our lives. Tim, you mentioned this as we were sort of moving into the break this idea that maybe you should be more, people in your field should be more like Carl Sagan or um, Attenborough. So I wonder how you, because you studied philosophy and economics, and yet are writing for the Financial Times and, you know, have written a book that I think a review called said the, the writing was enthralling. Um, so I wonder how you sort of made that shift and, and how you approached, you know, writing for more popular audiences and how that became sort of something that you were, were focused on.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think I stumbled into it, to be honest. So my first piece of, of public writing was, was a book called The Undercover Economist, mm-hmm. which um, is what unlocked uh, becoming a presenter on radio and, and becoming a newspaper columnist. And The Undercover Economist was really just a book of me going around the world noticing things that I thought were interesting and trying to figure out what they were, what was really going on using the economics that I'd been taught at university. So you could sit in a Starbucks looking at, or well, I would sit in a Starbucks, look at the pricing menu of a Starbucks and and try to figure it out what's going on and discover interesting things like turns out there's a there is a special um, size of Starbucks coffee that's smaller than the than all the other sizes and cheaper and that's not Mm -hmm. advertised so why does that exist and why don't they tell you it exists what's going on it's not some great conspiracy but you know there's a thing going on there that I personally wanted to to find out um and in many ways, it wasn't great journalism. I didn't call up Starbucks and ask them for comment or talk to any great experts about coffee pricing. I was just trying to figure it out myself and wrote it all down. And that turned out that that struck a chord. Um, but more generally, one of the things I've been trying to do um, with the team on More or Less, so it is a big team effort, is to get people to think about where else can we go with a particular factual claim? So it's very easy to, to use as a hook oh a politician has said a thing and that thing's not true, super easy uh, and to explain that it's not true. So there's lots of fact checkers who serve a very important role in the world uh, doing that because facts matter but I want to do more uh, than just do that with more or less. I want people to understand what's true about the world rather than just what's not true about the world and that very quickly gets you to you know, a, a place where you're going okay well if we don't have the answer, how can we get the answer? What data can we find? Who's looking at this? Um, what are the problems that they've they've found in investigating this question, whether we're talking about COVID testing or climate change or prevalence of dementia, whatever it is that we're looking into? Uh, there's a story to be told about the process of discovery and the uncertainties and all of that. That, to me, is super interesting. and I, I want to interest other people in it as well your Your
2: personal sense of curiosity seems to have really driven you to some to, to tell some really interesting stories. And I think that's a that's a powerful connection. I, I was in I was really intrigued and also uh, really happy to see the celebration of statistical bedrocks, you know, kind of the celebration of the importance of official statistics in in society. And I think these are these are stories that are, are in actions and activities that are not well appreciated generally. So what kind of drove you to to, to pull that out as one of your, your top 10?
1: Yes, I mean, it, in a way, I'm violating my own, my own rule, right? I'm supposed to be giving people 10 rules for thinking clearly about the numbers. And really, that chapter, which I think is chapter eight, is really just a, a chapter telling people to stop and appreciate what is done for them, by done for all of us, uh, by statisticians, Uh, working uh, often for government agencies, not always for government agencies, around the world. Uh, It's a really thankless task. Uh, They they get dismissed as bean counters and as irrelevant at best, um, or accused of lying and fraud, or threatened in some cases. Uh, And I, I wanted to tell some of the stories of these statisticians and the work they do and why it matters and um, I think w- one of the best ways to understand why it matters is to show what happens when those official statisticians come under attack, uh, one way or another. Sometimes it's very crude, uh, you know, to be threatened with your having your family killed, uh, as I was told happened to one uh, African statistician who, for obvious reasons, shall remain nameless. Or more subtle stuff like, you know, simply having having your data released to politicians before it's released to the the rest of the country and what what does that do for the reputation of the data and what are the side effects of, of that privileged pre-release access which I'm very pleased to say the Royal Statistical Society has successfully campaigned hard, hard against in the UK um, but to tell those stories of those those people sometimes very brave people and how important their work is uh, it mattered to me and I should say that the work that work is for all of us because I, I, I talked about the, the Rayner review in, in the UK in, in the 1980s under the Margaret Thatcher's government, where Sir Derek Rayner, who was a uh, high street retailer, he ran a, a chain of, um, of shops called Marks and Spencers, which is a you know, great uh, brand name in the UK. He was brought in to think about how the UK government used statistics. And he thought of it as a management problem. You know, the government needs to make decisions and statistics are an input into those decisions, and we gather the statistics that, you know, are useful to help us make decisions. And that sounds very reasonable. There's a lot of truth in that. That is one of the reasons why we collect official statistics. But it's, it's seductive, because if you go too far with that, you start to realise, that gives you a sense that all oh, the statistics are, they're private, we don't need to release them. They're for special people, important people, not for ordinary people. And actually, the statistics are going to be more robust, more respected, more scrutinized if they are for everybody to use as a, as a resource. And that was a point I wanted to underline.
3: And, and I guess this is also a way we build trust in statistics, because another argument of the, of the book is that, uh, we, or maybe it was actually in a conversation you and I had separately, was that we're not actually in a post-truth age, we're more in a post-trust age. And that's not to say that we should uh. immediately trust everybody. Um, trust is earned, but that actually we don't allow ourselves to trust as much as we perhaps should, or we trust the wrong people
1: absolutely we're, we're very selective in our in our trust and selective in our skepticism and um, uh, we should be selective. you don 't want to trust everything and everybody, but perhaps we're, we're selective in the wrong way. We trust people whether you know on the perception that they're, they're on our side, for example. So I wanted to examine that idea. And I was very struck by the, the work that uh, the philosopher Nora O'Neill has done on trust. And, and she says, yes, you've got to be discriminating in your trust. You've got to trust certain institutions or certain people to do certain particular things. And you've got to have a good reason to trust them. You don't just sort of generically just trust everyone, a- anyone to do anything. So given that that's how we should think about trust... You, you want to build trustworthiness. If you're uh, working in official statistics, you want to build the trustworthiness of official statistics. Or if you're producing algorithms, um, you want to establish the trustworthiness of your algorithms. How is it that you do that? And uh, Baroness O'Neill had uh, four um, items on a checklist that I thought were very useful. Having named them, I pro- I'll probably only come up with two or three of them. But she said, okay, first of all, you know, the data need to be, uh, need to be accessible. Like an expert needs to be able to get at them and evaluate them and say, yes, this algorithm, for example, is fit for its purpose or it's not. But they also need to be accessible by ordinary people. The data need to be there, easily downloadable from, from the Internet in a, in a straightforwardly useful format. Uh, and they need to be useful. You know, if, if there are data, for example, about um, uh, cancer risk, Uh, I'm trying to evaluate my cancer risk. The data need to be presented in a way that makes some kind of sense to me. So all all of these, these are sort of different aspects of transparency. It's very easy to talk about transparency as a sort of panacea. But actually when you get down to it, um, this thing that Baroness O'Neill calls uh, intelligent openness is a particular kind of transparency that lets people uh, access the data they need to access and feel confident that experts are able to really scrutinize it in a way that ordinary people might not be able to. It's quite striking that a lot of the algorithms that we um, sort of are making decisions about us, are claims are made for them and those claims are, are not accessible. Experts can't really evaluate whether those claims are true. We don't know what the algorithms are doing. We don't know why they're doing it. Um, the algorithms are not for us. They're the hammers and we're the nails. Mm-hmm. So you know, I wanted to push, push that idea quite strongly.
0: Tim, before we start taking questions from the audience, I do want to ask one question about one of the rules that you have in your book. Um, I started this episode talking about sort of alluding to this idea of misinformation. It's a constant thing that we are hearing covered and talked about in US media. I'm not sure what it's like in UK media. But you have a rule that says, remember that misinformation can be beautiful, too. And I wondered if you could just talk before we again go to questions from the audience. if you could sort of explain why you felt like driven to to write that particular chapter and sort of what the maybe underlying philosophy of it is
1: yes so that's a chapter really particularly pinned around the work of Florence Nightingale one of the great uh, early members of the Royal Statistical Society and the first female fellow of the Royal Statistical Society and um, I know you recently had an excellent episode of Stats and Stories about 19th century data visualizers, including Florence Nightingale. So I wanted to talk about her work and what it teaches us today. And one of the tensions in data visualisation is it's, it's very easy to get caught up in just how cool a graph looks, uh, you know, how, how original the presentation is. There's some wonderful, wonderful examples. They can be so wonderful that they distract from the fact that maybe the underlying data is junk and you you don't question the underlying data because the the graphic looks so cool. So I wanted to to think about that. And from the the point of view of the person building the graphic, building the visualization, do you want to play it super straight, just the facts? Uh, How much are you able to spin a story? How much are you able to make an argument? And I think Florence Nightingale is notable for, um, for treading that line very well her graphs are in some ways a little bit naughty. They, they really emphasize certain elements of the data. You could present in a much more straightforward way and you might draw different conclusions. However, I think she was on the side of the angels because ultimately all the data is there in, in the graph. The data is very rigorous and she was right. She was absolutely right in the messages that she was uh, putting across using her graphics. So I, I felt that she was an example of someone who'd walked that tightrope that is very difficult to walk.
0: So I'm going to uh, we've we've got some questions coming in and I'm going to try and collapse two of them together. That seem semi related, but I'm probably not going to do this in a very elegant way. Um, so the one person is asking about whether you deal with the effect of political tribalization, whether in the UK or USA, on people's decisions to trust. And one that sort of seems related just came in right above it related to that, this um, drumbeat about sort of saving um, 50 million pounds a day that was used in the, in the Brexit debate and sort of what your thoughts were on sort of the use of, of numbers and what this person says is a crooked way. I, you know, I'm not familiar with all of the rhetoric that was around Brexit in the lead up, so I'm going to trust them. But so those seemed kind of related, this issue of, of whether you deal with tribalization and, and this issue of trust around political rhetoric at, at all in the book.
1: Yeah, so I do, I do talk about tribal, uh, tribal identity and, uh, and polarization a lot. I mean, it's very much on my mind. Um, and it's a really difficult thing to, to overcome because for, for most of us, um, th- those political identities are very strong. Those cultural identities are, are very strong. And, um, and to be honest, if you think about an issue like global warming, what I personally think about global warming doesn't make any difference to the climate. Like, there's 8 billion of us on this planet. So whether I you know, stop driving my car or something, that's not going to make any difference. But it's going to make a huge difference to me what my friends think of me. Am I the right kind of person? Do I have the right kind of attitude about global warming? And there's a story in the book about people who are in the, these quite tense positions, for example, um, farmers in the Midwest uh, whose crops are suffering because of climate change, and yet because of the political environment in their states, can't really use the phrase climate change and how they thread that needle. Uh, it's very interesting to watch. So, yeah, I, I do talk about that. Um, specifically, the Brexit referendum, um, there was this notorious claim uh, painted on the side of a bus uh, that um, leaving the EU would, would save £350 million uh, a week. Uh, and uh, I think what's really interesting about that claim Uh, And the way it was dealt with by fact checkers, including um, more or less in in fact checking mode, is that um, it was very useful to the people making that claim that it be seen to be false. Uh, If people had had basically said, oh, yeah, that seems a bit high, but whatever, and got on and continued with the argument, um, that would have been, uh, you know, that wouldn't have worked for them. They, they, they wanted to be called out as liars and they wanted the debate to be about whether whether they were lying and how much they were lying because then it made the entire debate about, well, how much money do we send to the EU and how much money could we save by leaving the EU? Maybe it's not that much. Maybe it's not as much as 350. Maybe it's 200. Maybe it's 100. But no matter what the figure is, as long as you're going to save some money by leaving the EU, wouldn't you want to leave the EU? So um, th- this was you know a real light bulb moment for me to realize that to simply explain that that's not true that thing on the bus is not true doesn't doesn't help anybody understand the world doesn't help anybody understand the issues and um, but it's a it's a, it's difficult because you don't want to leave an untrue claim unchallenged um, but i I mean you I continue to see this in the u s election um it, it's pretty clear that um, there are certain statements being made with the express intention of being identified as lies uh, because that's a way of driving the narrative. Uh, I don't have a simple answer for any of this, but Mm -hmm. I think it's important to notice that that's one of the things that's going on.
0: Tim, Andrew, did you have a question? Yeah, since I'm I'm in real life right here in the room, as it were, and in the podcast, probably in the next episode, I guess. It's just that Tim, you you and I both use the media to some extent to talk about these issues Directly to the public. I mean, more or less, is, does fantastic work in, just as you say, raising the deeper ideas and the deeper questions alongside simple fact checking. Given that, I mean, I think I don't know. Maybe you'd agree that actually giving the public more confidence and better tools to do this work for themselves is really important thing. What else could we be doing in the media? to get people to be, I don't know, more curious, more open, more sceptical, more confident, more skilled? What what do we need to do and how could we better do it? Uh,
1: it's a great question. I mean, one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to encourage people to to realise that a lot of this stuff is not actually that hard. There are very, very complex technical questions in statistics, but Generally, it's the easy questions that give you most of the insight in most of the things that we're discussing. Um, you know, maybe a Google search, maybe some time with a calculator w- w- would help you ch- check things. But so th- that's one of the things I, w- I want people to realize. Um, and one nice little uh, idea that I got from uh, a writer called Andrew Elliott is the idea of a landmark number. So you carry around a few numbers in your head, like oh, population of the UK is about sixty-five million. Um, the budget of the National Health Service in the UK is about 125 billion pounds. Um, once you have a few of these numbers in your head, uh, you can start to put other numbers into context really, really easily. Um, so uh, Matthew Hancock, the um, health secretary in the UK, uh, recently said, oh, if, if everyone who was overweight lost um, five pounds, that it would save the NHS. I forget, I think it was 100 million, might've been 200 million. Uh, Over five years, and when you start picking that apart, you go, okay, so 100 million over five years is uh, is 20 million a year. There are 60 million people in the country. That's that's 30 pence per person per year. Uh, That's not. But people were emailing me and going, "Is it true? How does he know this? How can he make this claim?" And and I, I was saying, you don't need to evaluate the claim. You just need to know that the claim is that. If a lot of people lost a lot of weight, it wouldn't really make any difference to anything. That's the, that's the claim. <laughs> so, um, but I think by showing people the working and showing people that this, is, this isn't so complicated, the questions you need to ask, uh, you know, is it a big number? Is there a comparison? Can I compare this number to, so, to something else? Do I really understand uh, what's being described here? Uh, those questions anybody can ask it's often not very difficult to get the answers either. And I I hope that that is is quite empowering.
0: I'm gonna squeeze in, I think, two questions from the audience uh, before we wrap up. One very short. Are you reading the audio book version of your book, Tim? Uh,
1: Yes, I did read the audio book. It was not a short process, took 20 hours, (laughs) uh, (laughs) a lot of honey and lemon. Um, This is my ninth book. I've never done the audio book of any of my books before, but because uh, it's so closely associated with the radio work that I do, I felt I had to do it this time. And it was um, less unpleasant than I thought to be forced to <laughs> read all my own words back again. It wasn't as, was, wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be.
0: We, we've had a couple of questions come in about coronavirus stuff. and I'm, um, So I'm going to ask, I think, the, the last one that came in. Um, sort of what do you think about implications for trust of the wide pre-release access to COVID statistics um, presented by politicians at the Number 10 daily press conferences during the height of the the pandemic.
1: I I don't really understand why it is that politicians need pre-release access to anything. The argument that is always made is, well, you know, they need time to prepare their response and their rebuttal. And I don't know what the situation is with the with the pre-release access to to these uh, coronavirus statistics. But in the case of unemployment statistics, if I remember rightly, there were about a hundred people in. Uh, politics of government with pre-release access and why do you need a hundred people to have pre-release access uh, in order to prepare some kind of press release or rebuttal, just absolutely bizarre. And of course the, it turns out that there was strong evidence that that data was leaking and being used for insider trading. So um, so I, I I don't think it's helpful. Um, I mean there's a, there are a lot of other things to worry about in the way that those statistics are presented. Um, the UK government has has done some slightly weird things with targets um, but, you know, I, it, it's, it's best to have maximum transparency. And one of the features of maximum transparency is everyone gets the data at the same time. And I don't really see why that would be so hard.
0: So final question, it's related to coronavirus. I was trying to find this when I was trying to ask that last question. Um, someone is asking you whether you found the coronavirus specials were more or less emotionally challenging.
1: It was, it was hard because uh, I w- was making them during lockdown in a house with um, my three children in the house, all trying to tiptoe around and keep quiet, uh, underneath a duvet. Um, (laughs) A a good friend of mine, uh, Peter Sinclair, the man who persuaded me to become an economist, had died of coronavirus very early on. Um, And I actually had a, a bike accident and managed to quite badly injure my face. So the whole, I was sort of speaking, I can hear when I listen to the early episodes, I can hear the kind of weird, distortion of my mouth so there was a lot going on um, personally before we even got to the fact that the most extraordinary uh, tra- national and international trauma was taking place that depending on how you measure 65,000 people in the UK alone had had, had died in in the first wave so so that that was hard that said I, I had produced the first draft of the book and was just about to send it to the publishers when lockdown began making all of these arguments about how important the numbers were about all the invisible things in the world that we couldn't see without statistics that they weren't just about uh, tricks, they were about solving really vital life or death questions and just as I was about to send off the the manuscript in comes lockdown, in comes coronavirus the more or less specials begin and I realise this is really underlining what i was trying to say with the book so the the one silver lining i take is that the, the messages that i've been trying to put across and that my fellow nerds have been trying to put across about that this stuff matters it's not just about bullshit. For, for, forgive the my my language it's not just about disinformation it's about what's true um the the pandemic has made that case for us and and it was i, I was i felt quite lucky at least in one element which is the timing I had a chance to revise the book uh, with that in mind.
0: Well, Tim, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here and joining us today.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim.
0: And I'd also like to thank the Royal Statistical Society for hosting us. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories@miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net, and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.